Jim, just how much do you know about ice station Zebra? British civilian weather station up at the North Pole. They're in some sort of trouble. Trouble, yes. They've been sending out distress signals, but too weak and garbled to make much sense. There's something that's going wrong up there, that's for sure. Some kind of fire or explosion. Several men killed, the rest of them dying from burns and exposures. Pretty rugged. Yes. And they can't be reached, not by rescue planes. See, the entire polar cap is completely socked in with an ice storm. Might not clear up for days, weeks. No chance for the survivors, I suppose. They're not the reason you're going. They're just the excuse. Well, then what is the reason, sir? Well, I can't tell you that. But I can tell you this. It is important, sir. Vitally. Welcome to McGowan Worth Watching, in which we're looking at a movie from the career of Patrick McGowan. I'm your host, a matter-of-fact guy who likes to indulge in a bit of skullduggery and just wants to be delivered to my destination before my enemies can beat me there. My co-host is Guy, a man always willing to die for his cause. Hello, Guy. Hello, Ron. Found any good causes to die for lately? Not at the moment, but ask me again in a year or so. <laughs> okay, good. So why is Ice Station Zebra our worth-watching special? Well, as you may recall, Patrick McGowan had to leave the prisoner for a while to film this movie, so he had them rewrite the episode Do Not Forsake Me, Oh My Darling, to put his brain into another actor. That episode didn't make the cut, so we covered it in The Ones We Didn't Watch. Anyway, it seemed natural that we should see what he was up to during his break from the prisoner. This movie is a classic Cold War story based on a book by Alistair MacLean, his previous book, Guns of Navarone, was a big box office hit, so naturally Hollywood wanted to jump on his next book, ASAP. My dad says Ice Station Zebra was one of his dad's favorite books, <laughs> so I, I was eager to see this. Yeah, you know how throughout history there's always like some author who's writing big historical books and everybody reads them and then 20 years later nobody knows who they are? You know, I think yeah. that's kind of, Alistair McLean is one of those people. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, and one of the things I like about us doing these specials that sort of, you know, touch on things that aren't directly what we're covering is it encourages us to see things we might not have otherwise. And oh, for yeah. example, I've always meant to watch this movie. I even started it a couple of times, but got distracted mm. and never got around to finishing it. So I'm, I'm glad to finally do that. Yeah. And Howard Hughes was obsessed with this film. <laughs> and the, back then they didn't have VCRs or DVDs. However, he had the next best thing, which is that he owned a TV station in Las Vegas. Uh -huh. So almost every day, he'd call up the TV station in the evening and tell them to show the movie again. <laughs> <laughs> they showed it over a hundred times. So I, yeah. I think of Howard Hughes as having the most expensive VCR in history. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Good deal. <laughs> With that, let's get to the movie. Well, sir, if I'm going up there, and I don't know why. Your passenger knows. Passenger? That's another reason why I'm up here. To give you his orders. In person. Those won't be coming through normal channels. That's his name? Mm, 
There's another name in there that'll impress you more. Second page at the bottom. All right, sir. I'm impressed. Not enlightened, but impressed. So something that shows this movie was kind of the end of a different era of films is it starts with an overture and there's literally a slide on the screen that says overture and they spend two and a half minutes mm-hmm. <laughs> playing the overture. Yeah. To me, it took me a moment to figure out what this music reminded me of. And oddly enough, it reminds me of the ending of Alien 3. There's that moment when all the, when the prison's being shut down for good, all the doors are closing one after the other, and you get this triumphant orchestral score in, in a major key. The mood of that reminds me a lot of this. This this is not secret agent music, <laughs> even though it's at least partially a secret agent movie. Right, right. Once the overture is done, our movie actually starts, and we see the Earth, and a satellite is passing by. I felt like this was pretty good special effects. Eventually, I realized this is really just animation. You know, they, mm-hmm. they just drew all of this. And... Yeah. It strikes me, though, that there are a good number of movies these days that start like this, where you're seeing the Earth and then you see a satellite or an alien spaceship or something pass Mm -hmm, by, mm -hmm. and that starts off the movie, including a favorite film for both of us that we've only mentioned about 10 times, (laughs) The Thing, you know, which starts exactly (laughs) like this. Yeah. I don't know if it's meant to be a tribute or not, but the original story, Who Goes There, that The Thing is based on, it has a character named Benning, which is not a terribly common name. And there's a character in this movie named Benning as well. So I don't know if there's any connection, but figured I'd throw that in there. Another thing I wanted to mention that you sort of triggered by mentioning the initial view of the Earth is that since 1977, that's been pretty much the standard way that every Star Wars movie starts. <laughs> so that could be a factor, maybe influenced by this movie as well. Who knows? Yeah, it's possible. And we'll see other connections to the thing as, as we go along. Oh, yeah. So once the satellite has passed by, we see that both the Americans and Russians are tracking what's happening with this satellite. I, I have another little fine point that I want to mention here, and I spotted this myself uh, somehow. (laughs) They show sort of a montage of, you know, the people at Mission Control or whatever it is, and they're showing both Soviets and Americans, and they show an American machine with a Nixie tube readout on it, which if, I, I imagine you know what the Nixie tubes are, but they're Vacuum tubes that can show the numbers 0 through 9, they're basically proto-LEDs, but each one is made of an individual wire that can be lit up. So you see these machines, and you see an American one and a Soviet one, and if you check on it, as I did, the Soviet one is the American one with some stickers in the Cyrillic alphabet (laughs) pasted over everything American. Then you can actually see little evidence. There's a a company logo that pokes out above one of the stickers that was on the American one. So Yeah, you know, I totally missed this, and I went back and looked after you mentioned it, and this totally reminded me 
of something we commented on in Doctor Who when they had uh their they have the TARDIS console and they had written on the console in a Sharpie fast return switch. Right? <laughs> I I actually I actually thought of the Sharpies on the console there. Yep. Yeah. And this is a big expensive movie with Rock Hudson as the star and nobody noticed that they hadn't totally covered up the, the logo. It's just funny. Yeah. Uh, so the, we're back to the satellite. It fires some rockets, and then it separates from its payload. Payload enters the atmosphere, burning up, and then deploys a parachute and lands in an icy landscape. All we know right now is both the Americans and Russians know that this payload is down. Then we switch to an icy wasteland, you know, wind, snow. A human well-suited up for the cold has a beeping tracker in his hand and he's walking through the icy landscape following the tracker and he finds the satellite payload and kneels down and opens it up and then we see that there's another human watching him from a distance who also has a tracker in his hand and we switch from there to a bar in what we will find out is scotland and rock hudson is there he is captain faraday and he is called from the bar to join an older, high-ranking military dude who's in a different bar <laughs> in a private dining room. Yeah, and two two things I wanted to mention here. One is they they really do a good job in a short time of establishing that you're in Scotland. <laughs> I mean, it's a it looks very much like a Scottish pub, and the the bartender has the Scottish accent and so forth and so on, and then you see Faraday walking along the street and all the buildings look like old Scotland, you know, it's just, just <laughs> they really set the, set the location well. And I also wanted to mention that on the table between these two distinguished men is a triangular bottle of scotch and that's, the scotch is called the dimple pinch. Then you can still buy it today. My friends and I, if you have a bottle of the dimple pinch, we'll say, the dimple pinch and pinch your dimples. So be be warned. <laughs> maybe maybe I won't have scotch when I'm over. <laughs> the old uh, military guy says, Jim, just how much do you know about Ice Station Zebra? And for a rather random question, you know, the captain knows quite a lot about it. <laughs> it's a drift ice station at the North Pole. They're in some kind of trouble. Like, he's totally on top of this. And I looked this up. Because they use this phrase, drift ice station. In fact, the, the initials of Ice Station Zebra, D-I-S, Ice Station Zebra. And it turns out drift ice stations are a thing. Uh, Wikipedia has an entry on them. And these are, in fact, research stations that are on either ice packs or ice islands. So they're literally floating and their position changes according to what happens on the ice pack. So that's sort mm. of interesting. And the older guy says, yes, there's some garbled distress signals. Something has gone wrong for sure. Some kind of fire explosion. Several men killed, the rest of them dying. And based on a couple decades of watching the thing, I'm just like, look, don't, don't bother going. <laughs> just write them off, okay? Yeah, <laughs> let them freeze. <laughs> but they, you know, the thing hasn't come out yet. They haven't learned their lesson. <laughs> Uh, and this guy says the entire polar cap is socked in with an ice storm. It might not clear up for weeks. There's no way to get in. So how would they get in? Well, Captain Faraday is going to do it because he captains a sub, as we'll see. Huh. He's going to get them out. 
But he's, his mission is not to save anybody, even though that's going to be the official mission. His actual mission is just to get one person there. And he won't really say much about it. You know, he gives them papers and, and a name. And as we heard in the intro, Faraday says, okay, I'm impressed, not enlightened, but impressed. So <laughs> we'll see how this goes. And if he can save the people in the process, that probably wouldn't hurt at all. Yeah, though, you know, the old guy said nothing about that, so they didn't seem to <laughs> be particularly interested in him saving anybody. <laughs> and now we switch to a submarine exterior. Um, submarine is, is up uh, against the dock, and soldiers are arriving and entering the sub. And an officer says to Captain Faraday, this is a rescue mission. It's odd to send Marines. And I, I wasn't totally clear what the significance of that statement was. Yeah, and I'm I'm not 100% sure, but I, I think it's that the Marines tend to be sent in when you need to rough somebody up more than when you need to rescue somebody. Mm -hmm. Of course, there was that Marine mission. I believe it was a Marine mission that went to Iran to rescue the hostages mm -hmm. uh, under the mm -hmm. Carter administration, mm -hmm. which was ill-fated, but, you know, they made an effort. The yeah. weather was bad, I guess. But I think the, their usual... Mission is to uh, teach people a lesson. <laughs> and then Patrick McGowan shows up. Turns out he's the special passenger, Mr. Jones. Not a suspicious name at all. <laughs> <laughs> we go to the submarine interior, and Captain Faraday tells the crew we're going to skip the trim dive. And I wanted to know what that was, so I looked it up. And it turns out a trim dive is what you do to ensure everything in the sub is in balance in case you need to do a sudden dive. I'm not totally sure what that means, but it does mean he is skipping some of their safety procedures to get them going here. Yeah. Right off, Captain Faraday sets the tone for his relationship with McGowan. He says, we operate on a first name basis here. My first name is Captain. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, that may be my nomination for his best line in the movie, but uh, <laughs> we'll see. And also, occasionally you'll hear him referred to as a commander. So I'm not, I think that. I'm not sure where, how the ranks work versus right. the informal ranks. But. Yeah, that always seems a little unclear to me. Now, Faraday is impressed, and an important official flew to Scotland to personally hand him the orders for Jones. So he wants to know, what are you up to? And we get, to my mind, just a classic McGowan response here. About your mission. Well, I wouldn't insult you by swearing you to secrecy or anything of that sort. I think the most expedient thing, since you have your orders, is to obey them. <laughs> yeah, and then Faraday immediately gets him back because he's leaving. And Jones says, Captain, may I ask when we expect to reach the ice barrier? And Faraday says, yes, you may ask. And he leaves. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He's clearly, you know, there's there's clearly a little bit of, you know, pissing here to see who's yeah. going to be the dominant person. <laughs> two can play that game. <laughs> <laughs> and now we go to what we'll talk about more, but it is a really interesting question about, about whether this movie works or not, or what parts of it do and don't work. Cause we go to lots and lots of navigating the submarine. And I think they worked hard to make this realistic, but it goes on for several minutes. And in terms of moving the story along, it doesn't, right? Yeah, yeah, it, it, it doesn't necessarily further the plot. Personally, I did find a lot of it interesting because it's not a topic I'm already well acquainted with, so it's kind of a 
a glimpse into another world for me, but it is kind of like a lot of people don't like Moby Dick because mm-hmm. once you start reading it, every other chapter is long digressions on <laughs> uh, the culture of whaling ships and so forth. Mm-hmm. So either you like that or you don't. Yeah. <laughs> it's all right. Well, I think one of the things that we'll see how the movie was received is that a mass audience going to an expensive movie is not necessarily <laughs> looking for Moby Dick-like digressions. <laughs> <laughs> I will say in their favor, and I think one of the reasons they spent a lot of time on this, is that I originally assumed that the submarine work and all this was all models. But in fact, they used a lot of real submarines provided by the Navy for much of the movie. And that does, uh, it is pretty impressive. And in Mm -hmm. fact, this movie was the first time that the submersion of a submarine had been filmed in real time from the point of view of the actual sub. The director of photography on this did a, created whole new technologies in order to be able to say, you know, put a camera in a watertight container and attach it to the sub and have it be something that was going to be able to handle the pressure of going underwater and that sort of thing. So this this was a big deal, and, and I'm going to argue as we go along, I think that the impressiveness of this seduced them into spending maybe more time on some of this than the audience might actually have been interested in. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I could, I could see that. The, the underwater shots uh, do look great. I mean, yeah. there, was, there was never a time where it looked totally obviously a model, obviously, because most of the time it wasn't a model, I guess. <laughs> well, and when they use models, one of the things I noticed, <laughs> the stark difference between something like this and Doctor Who, of course, where they don't have any money to do that, is in Doctor Who, when they have a model of a ship or something, it's like two inches long, right? So mm, yeah. none of the physics makes sense. The water waves aren't the right size. If you have fire, it's not the right size, right? Nothing makes right. sense. It is clear to me, even though I couldn't find specific information on this, but whatever models they used were really big models Hmm. because you don't have any of those size issues. You don't have it feeling like the water waves are wrong or that the ice that they're going through is the wrong size. So I assume they had multi-foot models that really, you know, allowed them to do a realistic thing. It seems likely. I I don't recall a single scene with the submarine in it that, that didn't look, didn't look fine to me. Yep. So after they've been going for a bit, the captain comes to Jones and says, we've been ordered to a surface rendezvous just off the Orkney Islands with whom or what we don't know. I looked this up in Wikipedia. The Orkney Islands is an archipelago in the northern isles of Scotland. There are about 70 islands there of which 20 are inhabited. I have no idea how big these are. It's kind of, you know, how many people Mm -hmm. live on them. Sort of interesting little thing. Doesn't really impact the story at all. I just thought that was interesting. Then we go to the control room and the captain tells the crew to shift to red and the lights are switched to red. And I looked this up and it turns out they do this in a submarine and actually in other things like air traffic control and stuff occasionally. And a lot of the idea is that if the people in that room are going to be going into a night environment, for example, in the submarine, if they're going to be going up through the con outside, that being in red light means that you're more adapted to darkness. So you don't go out and you're not like blinded until your eyes adjust. So that's one of the big reasons that they use red lights here. And I, uh, I looked this up too, because I was curious while you're in a tin can underwater, who cares what kind of light you have. <laughs> and aside from the eye adjustment, another reason that some, some of the websites I looked at gave was that some periscopes would reflect light out of the boat 
out the lens above water of the periscope, and anybody watching would be able to see that. Now, I imagine that's probably been mitigated with the, you know, ongoing progress in technology, but (laughs) at, at one point that was a concern with the submarines, I guess. Yep. So the subsurfaces in the Orkney Islands and a helicopter drops off Ernest Borgnine, <laughs> who turns out to be a Russian named Vaslav. Captain, I'd like to introduce you to a good friend and an associate, Boris Borisovich Vaslav, the damnedest anti-Russian Russian you ever met. <laughs> good morning, Captain. So he and Jones are old friends, and they hug each other warmly. And as he says to the captain, we have the same friends and the same enemies. <laughs> It turns out Vaslav helps set up Ice Station Zebra so he can help them navigate there no matter where they end up on the ice. With Ernest Borgnine showing up, just an interesting thing, he just seems to love acting. And in multiple performances I've seen him in, he just radiates energy that tells me he really wants to be there. He really likes his work. Uh, A similar one, which we will cover someday, is his character in Escape from New York. I've seen that years and years ago, but I'd be I'd be willing to try it again. <laughs> I I suspect you'll enjoy it when we get there. I get a kick out of Ernest Borgnine wherever, whenever I see him and things. Uh, I, I he's passed away now, unfortunately. But if you can tolerate mild, not safe for workness and a little goofiness, two YouTube videos that might be amusing. One is called Ernest Borgnine is too sexy. And it's taken from the movie Basketball. So if you've seen that, you probably already know what that clip is. And there's another one that I hadn't seen, but I saw mentioned in the comments of that other clip. It's called Ernest Borgnine, The Secret to Old Age. And his secret is very concise, but it's uh, interesting. To the show show, but real quickly, you're 91 years old. You look fantastic. You look like you're, you're in nice. your late 60s, <laughs> early 70s. What's the secret? I don't dare tell you. <laughs> no me. You don't eat me. I masturbate a lot. Okay. <laughs> so there it is. Do what you will with it. Another person has arrived with Vaslov, and this is a guy named Captain Anders. No one seems to know him, and Captain Faraday is clearly curious why someone was so intent on getting him on board. And a brief biographical note, Jim Brown, who plays Anders, he was a football player for the Cleveland Browns. The The Browns were actually named after a different Brown, but he was played for them. And he built a, quite an acting career later. We've got quite a few movies under his belt. I enjoy him in this movie. I think he does a fine job. Mm-hmm. When Jones and Vaslov managed to be alone, Jones immediately asked Vaslov about Anders because he's suspicious of him. He might be a spy for either side. Vaslov doesn't know anything about him, says that his identity was verified, but this doesn't impress Jones. Now, Vaslov also knows what the true mission is, which we don't know yet, and he and Jones then speculate about what went wrong at Ice Station Zebra. Meanwhile, Captain Faraday, in his quarters, is interrogating Anders, because he's suspicious about Anders, And Anders is going to be taking command of the Marines. He says, you know, they had to fulfill your need really quickly, and they just put whoever they could on here, and they needed somebody good to lead them. So even after you left in your sub, they kept looking until they found me. Anders describes his leadership style, and essentially 
He agrees with what many managers believe, that a manager shouldn't be friends with the employees that he's <laughs> managing. To some extent, that makes sense, but also I've had a lot of managers that I would consider to be more or less friends or at least cordial acquaintances, and we'd go out and have beers now and then. So I, I think... It, it, I think you got to base that on circumstances, whereas <laughs> with Anders, it's a categorical decision. Yeah, as a demonstration, the captain has the lieutenant, who's currently in charge of the Marines, come in. The lieutenant attempts to shake Anders' hand. Anders will have none of it, and he tells the lieutenant to prepare the men for inspection and to tell them it's going to be a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> and then when the lieutenant leaves to explain his approach, Anders tells the captain... You think I was too abrupt with him, huh? I made a point of it. You see, Captain, I've saved a lot of lives by teaching men to jump when I speak. All right. The young lieutenant's a familiar type, popular with the men. As for me, I measure an officer's weakness by every man that likes him personally. <laughs> so, this, so he probably yeah, wouldn't have been going out for a beer with you guys. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Next thing we know, Vaslov is poking around the internals of the sub. And the crew is nice to him, but they're keeping an eye on him. And he asks if it's okay if he looks around in the various engine rooms and stuff. And they say yes, but the, the moment his back is turned, they call the captain and say, yeah. you may want to check this out. <laughs> and the captain immediately shows up and tells Vaslov he needs accompaniment in the future if he wants to be poking around. But then, at Vassal's request, the captain is happy to show him the sub's nuclear power source, which I would think maybe you wouldn't want to do, because it seems like this is probably something of the time the Russians didn't have. You know, they probably didn't have nuclear-powered subs, so mm -hmm. showing a Russian this seems a little questionable. Yeah. The funny thing here is, what they do is they, they lift up a hatch in the deck, and where the nuclear power source is. And all we see is a glow on Vassal's face. Yeah, it's a rich orange glow. It's definitely noticeable. <laughs> yeah, and this reminded me of this time-honored tradition in especially film noir films where, you know, they have MacGuffins, you know, the thing that everybody's chasing in the story. And the first time I'm aware of a kind of glowing MacGuffin was in Kiss Me Deadly, which is based on a Mickey Spillane novel. And there's a suitcase. Nobody knows what's in it, but whenever you open it, the person looking at it has this glow on their face. And, and we take it there's some kind of radioactive substance in the suitcase. And many movies have referenced this. Probably most famously, Pulp Fiction also had a glowing suitcase. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And the first time I saw that, I just assumed it was heroin. But <laughs> I, I read a theory that that is actually Marcellus Wallace's soul that he's trying to find a good buyer for. <laughs> so, uh, I don't know. It's, it's never answered in the movie, I don't think. But uh, anyway, it's a yeah, time-honored tradition. And if you actually looked into that pit, you would, I'm guessing you would probably just see a gray metal dome. <laughs> you wouldn't find much, <laughs> much edifying down there. I could be wrong. And we switch to everyone's having breakfast in the mess hall, and Jones comes down for some coffee, and Anders is standing there. And Jones finds out that Anders was last stationed in Asia and has never been on the ice. But Anders says a bullet goes just as fast up here as it does down there, and Jones has to put him in his place and correct him. Not quite. A bullet will decelerate as much as 40 feet per second per second faster down here. Denser air. 
So he owned him right there. <laughs> yeah, that was an amusing uh, little retort there. <laughs> and the sub reaches the Arctic ice and they go underneath. That's their shortcut to get to Ice Station Zebra. It's dangerous, but it basically allows them to go in a straight line. So they're going to get there a lot faster. And again, we're to lots and lots of navigating through underwater iceways. And it looks good. This is where I, I do assume they used models, especially when they had to have, have ice there. But it does look good. But they do a lot of it. It takes a long time. Yeah. Eventually, Jones is retrieved from his room because they've reached the last known location of Ice Station Zebra. Again, this being a drifting ice pack, they only know approximately where it might be. Now, the thing here is, we're an hour into the movie, so this would actually be a pretty ideal time to move into the next part of the movie, but that's not what's going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> and while the next part is interesting, this will be part of my criticism as, as we go on, is how they structured this. What they do at this point is they decide to simply move the sub up and bust through the ice. And they try this a couple times, and it doesn't work. The ice is too thick. Then the captain has the idea, why don't we use one of our torpedoes? We'll send the torpedo through the ice, then we can get through. This has never been done before, but his orders are to get Jones there and to do whatever it takes, so he's going to give it a try. So the crew goes down to the torpedo room, and Vaslov follows them out of curiosity. And here we get to uh, a pretty sloppy part of the script. <laughs> <laughs> the guy preparing the torpedo tube has this long conversation with one of the officers about how he just got permission for leave so he can go get married. Lots of good-natured banter, and you're like, oh, great. <laughs> this, if this were Star Trek, this guy would be wearing a red shirt. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Either that or he'd be, he'd be seeing, uh, I just got one more week before I get out of the Navy. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, this is, this is a clumsy setup, in my opinion. Uh, I'm not a professional screenwriter. <laughs> First, he's talking to his buddy. He was he gave his buddy a request for leave for the wedding that his buddy was supposed to pass on to the higher-ups. He's asking his buddy about it right now when they've already been at sea for a while. So first, why is he only asking about it now except for the fact that it's convenient to give you the half a minute's background on this character <laughs> before he bites it? I think what they should have done introduce this character earlier on, bring him in and so, into the story on some pretense, build up some affection for him, let it, let it be known that he's getting married, looking forward to his, you know, wedding mm -hmm. and all that. And then in this scene, sort of had a minor reference about the engagement just to remind you, oh, this is the guy who's right. getting married. That's yep. how I think it would have worked a little better as far as tugging at the old heartstrings. Right, and one of my complaints about the amount of time they spent on the first part of this is they had plenty of time to do something like that. They could have just cut out a couple of navigating through the ice, you know, <laughs> scenes and done that. <laughs> so I, I agree, this is not good. Okay, but now we've we've done all this foreshadowing. Let's see what's going to happen to him. <laughs> so how a I had no idea about this, so I, I appreciate in the movie that I learned about this. How a torpedo tube works is they do have to worry that if there's a leak or something in the torpedo tube that it's filled with water or that the external part cap is open and that there's the seawater is directly in there. So they have some fail-safes for this. And one of their fail-safes is they have this little faucet coming out of the end that they can then open up. So if there's any water in the tube, the faucet will then have water come out of it. Well, 
He checks the faucet, and it's just got a couple drops. Nothing to worry about. <laughs> yeah, and he tries eventually to open this torpedo <laughs> tube. He's using a great big wrench, a pipe wrench, presumably, but he says, boy, this is tight. And that's when I went from 90% <laughs> to 100% sure that something yep. bad was coming. <laughs> Yeah, but he manages somehow with his huge wrench to get the tube open, and it turns out that the tube is open to the sea, so the water just floods in, you know, throws him against something and kills him probably instantly, mm -hmm. starts flooding the room. Huge amounts of water are coming in, because literally you just, this it's open to the sea now. And the crew reacts very quickly throughout the sub, right? They start closing the hatches to keep the water from going to different parts of the sub. But there's all this water in there that's heavy, so the sub immediately starts sinking. Now, eventually, they close the tube, and I do not buy this. Uh, at least until that room is filled with water, I do not buy that men, even with a little bit of mechanical assistance, could close something where a huge amount of water is rushing in at the velocity and power that it would be at the depth that they're at. I, oh, I don't think yeah. they could do all it. The, <laughs> yeah. All that pressure, it, it, yeah. Yeah, it seems... Yeah, I mean, theoretically, there could be some kind of hydraulic assist on the door or something, but still, I mean, it seems unlikely, but who knows? I guess, you know, conveniently for the story, Jones is there, and he's actually one of the people who manages to get the tube closed. And now here's again where I'm going to criticize this portion of the film, which is, I don't know, five minutes or something. For the next mm -hmm. many minutes, they just sit there while the captain insists that they keep the rotors going in reverse to try and get the submarine going back toward the surface. And we just watch that for minute after minute. There's oh, nothing yeah. happening. <laughs> and they're, and they're, they're building up the suspense with the drain on the reactor. You know, it's like, Captain, she cannot take much more. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but uh, and eventually they just stop and start ascending. I mean, there's nothing, yeah. you know, there's, there's <laughs> nothing that happened, nothing that was a good idea. They just start ascending, you know? <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. It's uh, and they don't really explain what made the difference. They're just like, Whoo, that was close. <laughs> mm -hmm. Now the captain is naturally upset <laughs> at this turn of events. <laughs> so he goes to the torpedo room to see what was going on. And Jones is there and he says to the captain, do you think it could be an accident? And first of all, there's no way Jones thinks that, but <laughs> it's interesting that he asks that. <laughs> and this is my nomination for the best Rock Hudson line of the movie. There's one thing that cannot happen on a submarine by accident, and that is both ends of a torpedo tube open to the sea at the same time. <laughs> and Jones immediately launches into this complicated ex explanation of how you could do this. And what you do is like cross the circuits in the control panel so that you can't see that the exterior tube door is closed. And then you plug the little test faucet somehow it could be with some gum or anything. And so that you can't tell there's water in there. Then you open the tube, then good night. <laughs> <laughs> and Jones walks out. Interesting thing here. Most of the events that occur in the sub are probably based on real incidents. And this in particular is a case where some wet paint accidentally plugged the test faucet. And that's why they didn't see any water coming out and they opened the tube. And, and that, as we were kind of talking about in the real life situation, the sub sank and everybody on board died. Right. That yeah. was, that was an event that actually happened. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. So Jones has left. Faraday checks things out and he determines that epoxy was used to plug the test faucet. 
So he comes back to Jones, who's drinking some whiskey to kind of steady his nerves after all this. I don't think we mentioned that that was a special privilege that was Mm -hmm. afforded to him early on. On board the submarine, whiskey was not allowed except for medicinal purposes. So uh, Jones got a medicinal exception (laughs) because he likes whiskey. Now, in this case, he happened to know where it was stored, so he just went and grabbed it (laughs) Um, so he could have some extra whiskey, yeah. So Faraday comes into where he's drinking his whiskey and says, all of a sudden, you know a whole damn lot about submarines. And I really like this line. It's classic McGowan. It says, mm-hmm. I know how to wreck them, and I know how to lie, steal, kidnap, counterfeit, suborn, and kill. That's my job. I do it with great pride. <laughs> <laughs> and then Faraday confronts Vaslov, who's also there, and says, is this your job too? And he says, yes. And then he has his own theory. What's your theory? <laughs> that there is a man aboard this ship who committed sabotage. You mean go down with it? Of course. And as willing to die for what he believes in as you are. Or I am. <laughs> mm-hmm. So this will become more meaningful as we go along. <laughs> ah. uh, the captain is skeptical of both Jones and Vaslov. I mean, his sub has just about been sunk by sabotage. He's not having it from anybody. Jones defends Vaslov, saying that after Jones got him through the Berlin Wall in 1961, he's proven his trustworthiness to all of the Americans and British, etc. And that, that rang a bell with me, so I looked it up, and sure enough, the Berlin Wall was built in 1961. So there was, there was a lot of emigration from East Germany at that time. And Wikipedia says, and I've got a little... I left out some from this quote, but the exodus of emigrants from East Germany presented an easy opportunity to smuggle East German secret agents to West Germany. Mm-hmm. So that was one one side effect of the Berlin Wall was with, with all the people going over, there were a lot of undesirables. They're not sending their best. <laughs> so Jones says it can't be him because he's in charge of the whole mission. I'm not sure why that means he couldn't be the saboteur, but, you know, okay. But Jones nominates Captain Anders. He says maybe he's not even the actual Captain Anders. Maybe he killed and replaced him. And he says, I've done the same sort of thing myself to the other side. (laughs) Faraday says, look, I'm suspicious of all of you. And Jones forcefully reminds him, and this is with some classic McGowan table pounding, including there's the teacup he's drinking the whiskey out of that bounces on, and we've seen exactly that in The Prisoner. <laughs> Pounds the table, says he's in charge, and the mission is to get him to Ice Station Zebra, and, you know, the captain shouldn't forget that. And they are debating what to do next, given all the failures, but all of a sudden it turns out that they've just found a very thin place in the ice, and they're going to be able to break through. And that means that Jones and the captain don't have to keep arguing about this. And they do break through the ice and they're ready to go on to the next portion of the movie. And we're at the intermission. About 10 minutes. So the intermission slide comes up and goes for a while. And then we get something I'd never seen before. It's a French word, intracte. I'm probably saying that incorrectly which I wasn't familiar with, and I thought maybe it was just them for some reason using a different language as word for intermission. But I looked it up, and it turns out this comes from the theater. So between acts, when they needed to change up the scenery, but they didn't want the audience to get up or get restless, 
they'd have a couple of actors continue the story in front of the curtains, and this was called intracte. I assume in this case, the deal is, when it says intermission, they're saying, look, you can go to the bathroom. <laughs> and when they say intracte, they're like, get back in your seat. <laughs> Makes sense, yeah. So that's my assumption. So now it's time to get back to your seat, and I'm going to hand it over to Guy to cover <laughs> the rest of the story. Shot before they were burned. Exactly. And Goodwin shot them. Obvious. I would say that the uh, good doctor was after something before he died. Well, the submarine has surfaced. The conning tower has poked up through the ice, and you can see planes of very thick ice poking up into the sky where the submarine has emerged through it. And uh, a whole lot of men emerge from the submarine into a <laughs> howling storm. They're in a few different groups. Each group is tied together with rope. And they're not out very long before... One of the guys suddenly falls through the ice, and he drags another one down with him. And it ends up the the very lowest guy is dangling right above the freezing cold water. So it's a it's a little bit of an emergency. Uh, the other groups come to help, and they're helping to pull the guys out. But now, just to add more trouble, the walls start closing in. It's a lot like the trash compactor <laughs> on the Death Star. It's not a continuous movement, though. They'll move in just a little bit, then they'll pause, then they'll do it again. I've never been to the North Pole. I'm not sure it would happen quite this quickly, but maybe. I mean, it's not like, I mean, they're well into the ice, so I, I don't know why it would suddenly be shutting like that, but what do I know? Yeah, I, I wondered about that myself. The The best reason I can come up with is that the sub surfaced and punched through the ice and, you know, nature abhors a vacuum and all yeah. that. So may, maybe that could be an explanation or it could just be a convenient plot point. Mm -hmm. Who knows? <laughs> but either way, the walls are closing in, but the guys all make it out in time. No casualties here. But the sub is having the same thing happen to it. It's uh, it's in the same boat as the men. <laughs> so it it has no choice but to submerge, and it does that. It 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 bumps into some ice, but nothing drastic. It it gets away fine. Now the shore party proceeds onward. Finally, it reaches the station, and the station has seen better days. Some of the buildings are actually burned down to the point that there's nothing but beams showing. And one of the huts is intact, and they enter it. It's a Quonset hut, which is the, the curved roof. And they enter it, and it's full of men who initially look dead, but it turns out they're just sleeping. And there's a little bit of ambiguity here, at least for me it seemed like, because it looks like the hut is supposed to be cold inside, which would explain why they're all unconscious, maybe just, you know, trying to preserve their energy, whatever. But no one's breath is visible, although I'm not sure that anyone's breath is ever visible in this. <laughs> so that's probably well, not a point here. This brings up something for me, which is, although actually their overall, their Arctic set is pretty good, right? It's clearly a no, very yeah. big set. They did, even though they're using some styrofoam and stuff, they did pretty good work on the ice and everything. But right. 
not only do people not have visible breath, but nobody ever has a hair out of place. <laughs> nobody looks particularly <laughs> dirty. This is a very Hollywood film in that sense. You think about uh, if you've ever seen the film U-Boat, which was kind of a classic other you know submarine one, and everybody's dirty and greasy and you know, sweaty and none of that happens here. You know, Rock Hudson is not going to ever be sweaty. <laughs> yeah. Now, is U-Boat the, is that the English title of Das Boat? Yes. It, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Actually, Das Boat is probably, yes, the actual title. Okay. And another thing that makes me wonder about the environment in the hut is that no one seems to really care about getting these guys warm. Vaslav gives them some whiskey, but beyond that, there's nobody like bustling around to build a fire or anything like that. And there's plenty of wood available from the buildings that burned down. There's a stove in here. So I think maybe it's supposed to be at least partially heated, but it's just, I couldn't tell from the context and I, I watched it a couple of times and I'm still, still not sure. So whatever, not a big <laughs> deal. So now that they've got in here and established that some of the men are alive, they start a conversation, Jones and Faraday and Veslov. They're starting to try and get some information from them. There's lots and lots of repetition in this scene. It reminds me of a YouTube video. I think it's about two and a half minutes. It's called Charlie Rose by Samuel Beckett. I can only recommend it if, well, I can only recommend it if it's the sort of thing you like, but you won't know if you like it till you've seen it. So. <laughs> It's just sort of a goofy, stupid thing where Charlie Rose is interviewing himself and just repeating a lot of gibberish over and over again. They're talking about Microsoft, Yahoo, Google, and, and uh, he just repeats himself, Google, Google. Steve is not happy with the process so far. Microsoft Don't and do that. Yahoo. Google. 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 No, we're not going to do that. I can never get uh, Craig to talk to me about his economic model. Google. No. Google. No. Google. No, we're not going to do that. This scene reminds me of that, though, because... Mm -hmm. You have sort of a background motif where the radio operator keeps repeating, Viking, come in Viking, this is Zebra. Uh, and then on top of that, you've got you, the guys from the sub are interviewing the men in the hut, and they keep repeating themselves, you know, <laughs> like they'll say, Goodwin. And it, it's almost like a word association test or something. And, right, and, and it's a little weird that every single one of them rea is reacting the same way. None of them is really coherent and, and can't do a sentence. And one of the things I'll mention, even though I like this part of the movie more than the, the first 90 minutes, I think it kind of, you know, takes off as they start to get into the meat of it here. For my last viewing before our podcast, one of the things I do is I typically watch it like one and a half times speed just to right. catch up on things. And watching all this at one and a half times speed, you lose absolutely nothing. And it's still a little bit long. So, I mean, it's just, they just take their damn time on all this stuff. And, and as you say, repeat stuff an awful lot where I think they could cut it down and make it a little more compelling. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree. They do get some information though. So that's, uh, that's, that's good. They, they find out there was an explosion. They find out Dr. Goodwin saved the men's lives, those lives that were saved. 
Uh, and Dr. Hallowell was burning. He was covered in flames. Mm -hmm. So they get that much information. Jones, he heads to another intact building. It's an orange building, and it turns out to be the Snowcat Garage, or the garage for some kind of snow vehicle. I don't know if it's Snowcat brand. It's a garage, anyway. The interior is frosted with ice, and it, it, I want to briefly describe how it's laid out because a lot will happen here. Mm -hmm. When he walks in, there's an entry room. It's a small room. There are electronic instruments all around, and there's some chemical equipment, glassware, and so forth. There are some analog scales, you know, just for weighing stuff on the, on the table. There's a frozen dead guy. And later in an external shot, it looks like one corner of this room is open to the outside. But from the indoor shots, I never really noticed that missing corner of the room. But it appears to be there. And at any rate, it's very cold in there because there's frost all over the place. But then from that room, there's a set of stairs leading down into a lower room uh, with a workbench. And it has a vehicle that's something like a snowcat. It's a garage, and there are actually two big doors that will let you drive it out. And I think I learned the term snowcat from The Shining. I'm not sure, but I think that's where I got that. Anyway, Faraday comes in, and then pretty shortly after he enters, Jones leaves. He's going to go check out another building. Faraday looks around for a minute, and he, he gets the lay of the land, sees the snowcat and all that. Jones went to a partially burned Quonset hut, you know, one of those rounded top things. If you don't know what it is, imagine like a a cylinder and then cut it down the cut it in half lengthwise and then set it down. That's basically what it is. So anyway, Jones goes into this building and he finds Vaslav's already there. He's inspecting a bunch of frozen dead people. There's there's a bunch of them. And it turns out he's found Goodwin and Hallowell, the two of the scientists who were mentioned in the interviews earlier. And there are others among them, other names he mentions that seem to have significance to Vaslov and Jones. Vaslov searched, and he hasn't found film that they were looking for so far. And apparently all these men who were shot were shot by Goodwin, and then they were burned. Back in the main Quonset hut, where all the living people are, Faraday was in there, but he's emerging back into the storm. He calls to a crewman named Zabrinsky to get an ice drill, and he points out a flat spot on the ice a thousand feet away where he's to begin drilling. Back in the burned Quonset hut, Jones and Vaslov are still looking around, they find a chest containing a weather balloon, and this was intended to lift the film for collection in the air. Yeah, and this brought up something for me, so I looked into it, because we've talked about The Dark Knight a couple of times. One of the scenes in The Dark Knight, he's in Hong Kong, and he's kidnapping this Hong Kong businessman, and he releases a balloon, and, you know, the bat plane comes and collects them based on that balloon. And it was my understanding that that was not, in fact, realistic, that you can't pick up a person that way. However, this triggered me to do some searching, and Wikipedia has an article on what's called the Fulton Surface-to-Air Recovery System, 
which was invented in the 1950s to do exactly this, right? To, to find ways to have a plane be able to pick up someone without stopping. And they had a couple different approaches, but one of them was to do a balloon and have the person go up. And to test this out, I found this really amusing. They used a pig, right? So they did Ooh. the balloon and they put a pig in the um, harness. And as it was going up, one of the things they found was the pig spun around over Ooh. and over. So by the time it got into the plane, it was very disoriented. <laughs> And it was also very mad. So once it got over being dizzy, it attacked all of the crewmen on the plane. (laughs) Now, I would have loved for that to have been part of the movie, but... (laughs) (laughs) But it would have made a fun scene. And that Fulton system is also well-known in recent years from the game Metal Gear Solid Five. They give the player an opportunity to use that amply. And you can use it on sheep, possibly (laughs) pigs as well. I'm not sure, but at least on sheep. So, uh, Faraday re-enters the burned Quonset hut and he asks whether Goodwin was Jones's guy, but no, it was Hallowell who was on our side. Faraday leaves again and Anders, who is Jim Brown, he's looking menacing. He's got the dark goggles and a rifle and he's lurking outside he kind of sneakily peers into the hut makes you wonder Mm -hmm. then we switch over to the drilling site out on the flat ice and faraday is there supervising the men pull the pull the ice drill out and they've uh it's it's pretty neat it's got a long bit it did the job faraday says now let's see if we can catch ourselves a submarine (laughs) And that's basically what he's doing. He's ice fishing. He lowers a device down there, and you get an underwater view of it, and it looks a lot like uh, just a hanging microphone. You hear it start emitting sonar pings. You know the sound. Anyway, uh, on the submarine, they detect these pings, and they adjust their course accordingly. So they're heading, heading for the fishing hole. Back in the garage building, the Snowcat garage, or the Snowcat knockoff garage, as the case may be, Faraday asks what size the film is, and Jones describes it as a four and a half inch reel, 16 millimeter, in an insulated aluminum capsule. And all of a sudden, you know a whole damn lot about my business. Yeah, one note about this, because Faraday just comes in and asks him about the film, but no one has told Faraday about the film. So it's clear that he was briefed on that part of it, even though Jones didn't know that he, he knew that. Yeah. Right. Then Faraday says, we don't believe in going on a mission totally blindfolded, Mr. Jones. <laughs> <laughs> so he was able to keep an ace or two up his sleeve. Mm-hmm. And that conversation is just the very beginning of a big <laughs> exposition dump. It's, I found it entertaining and interesting, but it is still an exposition dump. Oh, and I have to say, I think McGuin does a really good job here because he's going around this room, opening doors, looking for stuff while giving all of this very precise dialogue in a pretty interesting manner. So, you know, it requires a good oh, yeah. actor who can do all that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He's going around. He's looking in every nook and cranny for the film as he's explaining all this. So it, uh, it, he did a good job with that. Um, 
So the explanation is it's a British camera using American film in a Russian satellite. <laughs> it's important because it has these advanced lenses that were ground in Britain, and they can, quote, photograph a packet of cigarettes from 300 miles <laughs> up in space on a tiny negative capable of infinite enlargement. <laughs> well, that, that infinite enlargement made me chuckle because... That is a key plot point in the Mel Brooks movie, High Anxiety, that it actually ends up providing <laughs> the crucial evidence where they take a frame of film and they blow it up much, much larger than anybody should be able to. <laughs> it's also like I was with them on all of this until you get to that. And anyone who's involved in computers or photography in any way, you just want to slap your head at this point because <laughs> over and over again, we have these science fiction films. You know, Blade Runner did this, right? Where he has a photograph and he keeps enlarging and enlarging right, and enlarging right. until he sees what he wants. Like, that's not how it works. <laughs> there is no infinite enlargement. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Although you could believe that in Blade Runner, they might just have such high resolution. Yeah. <laughs> but, but yeah, still, there's no, not infinite enlargement. Unless you subscribe to the holographic universe theory. Yeah. In which case, you know, you can extrapolate everything from a piece of fairy cake, <laughs> as Douglas Adams said. Anyway, I digress. <laughs> the negative, Jones explains, is miraculously developed within the satellite itself. And this seemed... At first, this seemed to me like a wasteful extravagance. Why develop it on board the satellite when they can do it when it gets back and you don't have to send up all that developing equipment? But I did a little bit of research, and film negatives do go bad over time. It takes a while, but one site, thedarkroom.com, it says that film can be developed years later, but it says colors shift contrast fades away and fog builds up so that does make sense i mean mm -hmm. you don't want to start a nuclear war because you mistook a pack of l&ms for a pack of pound mouths <laughs> all right i'll buy it it's miraculously <laughs> developed fine the united kingdom lent the camera to the united states the russians hijacked the camera and took it to havana and it just <laughs> went on from there the Russians put our camera, made by our German scientists, and your film, made by your German scientists, into their satellite, made by their German scientists, and thus up it went, round and round, whizzing over the United States of America seven times a day. And this actually was kind of a thing that was on people's minds in the 1960s. The former Nazi scientists who were parceled out among the Allied powers the musical satirist Tom Lehrer, I think you're familiar with him, he has a song called <laughs> Werner von Braun. Gather round while I sing you of Werner von Braun, a man whose allegiance is ruled by expedience. Call him a Nazi, he won't even frown. Nazi schmatzi, says Werner von Braun. Don't say that he's hypocritical. Say rather that he's apolitical. Once the rockets are up, who cares where they come down? <laughs> That's not my department, says Werner von Braun. 
Some have harsh words for this man of renown. But some think our attitude should be one of gratitude, like the widows and cripples in old London town, who owe their large pensions to Werner von Braun. You too may be a big hero, once you've learned to count backwards to zero. In German or English, I know how to count down. And I'm learning Chinese, says Werner von Braun. That's relevant to the topic, and uh, it's not hard to find on YouTube. The import of this camera and its film and so forth is that it's going to get, or it has gotten, pictures of every missile base in North America. And incidentally, it also took pictures all over the Soviet Union because it didn't just switch off when it flew over that part of the world. Looking at it from today's perspective, now we've got the Google Earth and all that kind of stuff. So this, uh, the technology now is probably a lot more advanced than it was back <laughs> in the 1960s. So this probably, at, at this point in the game, would not have been a good foundation for a movie but back then <laughs> at the time apparently it was so i thought a little interesting thing that was just thrown in here is that jones says when one camera took a picture of the ground there was another camera that would simultaneously take a picture of the stars so that you could get a fix on the location i thought that hmm. was an interesting way to handle that at a time when you wouldn't have had many of the same you know gps coordinates that we would have now oh yeah yeah, I, I didn't, you know, I watched it twice and I still didn't pick up on that. So that's, that is interesting. What happened to the satellite, though, was that the rockets misfired. The Soviets couldn't fix it, but they still had just enough control to determine where they were going to bring it down. And as Jones is describing this, he's temporarily taking a break from searching the place. And he's picked up a large round-bottomed flask. <laughs> And he's using it as a as a globe. You know, this is a chemical flask. It's just basically a big bubble with a neck on it. And he's using it as a globe to sort of illustrate the ways that the satellite flew and the ways that it ended up getting a off course. This just kind of a breaks up the visual presentation of this long exposition. It's kind of neat. Yeah, and now maybe it wasn't a cliche at this time, but <laughs> by now we've had so many different cases of people like, now I'm going to explain time and space to you by using a globe or using a piece of paper or, you know, whatever. Oh, yeah. So the funniest comment on this was Ryan Johnson's science fiction film Looper, where Bruce Willis has to explain time. He says, you know, I'm not going to sit here with a bunch of salt and pepper shakers and explain time to you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll have to check that one out. I, I saw the Red Letter Media review of it. But I uh, it's it's a good movie. movie. I have a, a couple of complaints about it, but absolutely it's a good movie. Yep. Okay. Worth watching. Time travel has not yet been invented. But 30 years from now, it will have been. I am one of many specialized assassins in our present called loopers. So when criminal organizations in the future need someone gone, they zap them back to me. And I eliminate the target from the future. 
Event Horizon uses the, let me show you the simple way, with the, with the newspaper, <laughs> and he pokes a pen through it, you know, to right, warp through right, space. Yeah. Yep. At any rate, Jones says, 10 days ago, he, quote, Goodwin appeared and applied for permission to do some research here, a university professor of impeccable qualifications. He was immediately accepted and flown up the next day. Faraday asks him, you knew he was their agent? And Jones says, ever since he became impeccable. <laughs> I thought that was a cute line. Mm -hmm. uh, Faraday goes on, then three of your men of impeccable qualifications came up the next day. Jones says, no, same day, same flight. So Faraday is understandably curious whether uh, Goodwin knew that Hallowell was a spy, or vice versa. Jones says it doesn't matter. The scientists, they all had to feign ignorance because otherwise they could end up starting an incident that would yeah. just get out of hand fast, potentially. And, and Jones says, We have a very strict code of ethics in our game, Captain. We usually know what cards the other man holds, but we always keep our aces up both sleeves. <laughs> Jones also mentions, this is a minor detail, but it does become relevant shortly. He mentions that the storm is clearing to the west. And as they're talking, it's not clear whether Goodwin or Halliwell got to the film first, but Jones thinks he understands the most important parts of the events. He says, in any event, there was a shooting match out in the snow, and Goodwin came out of it alive. But he got caught in the fire, too. I believe he started the fire to obliterate the evidence. Burn down the whole camp. Live on the supplies he'd stacked away. Faraday says, when the storm cleared, he'd run the film up in that balloon and a Russian plane would pick it up. And Jones adds, and we'd live under the threat of what was on that film for the rest of our lives. Mm -hmm. Which, uh, presumably for all or most of our lifetimes, we have been living under the threat <laughs> of what was on that film because... Uh, mm -hmm. Now, now they've got the technology, I'm certain. Yep. <laughs> Just uh, go to Google Maps. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So back outside, Faraday speculates that there must have been a tracking device, and Jones confirms that each side had one. Jones brought one himself, but it isn't working. The, apparently, the frequency on it has been changed. Jones says, Pity you mislaid your submarine. We could have used your men. <laughs> and uh, in perfect Hollywood timing, that cues the sub to come erupting up through the thin ice where they drilled the hole. So now the sub is here, and Faraday says, I want a hundred men out here. He radios to the ship. He wants a hundred men, and that surprised me because I, from what we saw in that hour and a half a submarine segment, I didn't know that the sub held that many crewmen. Well, they kind of hinted because they do make a couple references to how crowded the quarters are and the captain's mm. sort of apologizing for that. Yeah. But uh, then again, there is the old joke. What's long and hard and full of semen? <laughs> the answer is a submarine, in case you were wondering. My name is Marge Bouvier. I'm here about your aunt. Single white female wanted for mysterious expedition. Must like monkeys. Non-smoker preferred. Well, you'd be a welcome change of pace from the rest of these crude and uncouth sailors. What do you think, Smithies? 
I think women and semen don't mix. We knew what you think. <laughs> uh, the submarine reports unidentified aircraft on our scope. They're coming from the west at 620 knots, which is nautical miles, which are slightly different than the miles we're used to, but that's still a pretty fast speed, no matter how you look at it. Estimated time of arrival is 17 minutes. And the reason they can be approaching is what Jones mentioned earlier. The weather is clearing from the west. So the Russians get a, get a head start there. <laughs> and then we see some special effects, and it's a mixed bag for me. They're fighter jets, a formation of five of them. They're speeding over the snowy ice packs. I think it's done on green screen, as far as I can tell. The quality of the green screening is okay. It's it's a little obvious, but it you know it matches up well. There's not any obvious delineations. Not yeah, super but obvious. This was janky enough that the guy in charge of special effects basically apologized <laughs> for this. Oh, in, really? In okay. later years, yeah. Because again, big expensive movie supposed to be a you know a big deal, and they have. And the other embarrassing thing is we'll talk about at the exact same time 2001 was out and 2001 had incredible special effects. So when you compared these two, it just embarrassed them, you know? Well, yeah. And the, the thing, the thing that got me, it wasn't the quality of the green screen composition. It was that you'll have scenes where the formation is, you know, tilting 45 degrees left or something like that. And and it doesn't do it the way that a formation would. It's like the background footage doesn't match up with the way the planes are moving mm -hmm. all the mm -hmm. time. So that mm -hmm. was that was what I found mildly objectionable. But still, it's you know it's okay. It's, <laughs> it didn't ruin my whole experience. It was just could have been a little smoother. Oh well. So around the camp, we get a little brief montage of people doing stuff. There's a hundred men brushing snow off the ice. They're searching the buildings, including the snowcat garage, and they don't find anything, which means they didn't look hard enough because there's <laughs> something to be found there. But uh, we'll get back to that shortly. So in the intact Quonset hut where all the men are hanging out, now they have an update that the planes are nine minutes away. There's an amusing little exchange here. There's a radio operator trying to look for the frequency of the tracking signal, and he can't find it. Uh, he gives Faraday some uh, scientific explanation. He says, well, sir, in zones of visible aurora, you get transmissions in the sporadic E-layer, like a cloud stratum. <laughs> Faraday says, uh, appropriately, just tell me when it works. <laughs> Jones has gone back to the snowcat garage. He's, I don't know, maybe got an intuition about it or something. In boxes, sitting near the snowcat, he finds... Uh, sheets of fabric, and one of them has a patch ripped out of it, a pretty big patch. He sniffs it, and then he looks at the gas tank of the snowcat, which uh, it has its own little conning tower, just like the submarine. It sticks up out of the vehicle. He unlatches it, and he flips it open. Yeah, it wasn't clear to me what all the connections were here. Like, I don't know, maybe they cut the balloon out of this fabric or what, but apparently the fabric. So the only thing I can assume is the fabric smelled like gas, which made him look in the gas tank, but I don't know why the fabric would have been in the gas tank. I, it, this, none of this kind of connects together for me. Right. Well, I think 
As we'll see shortly, he used the fabric to wrap a few different items and put them mm. in the gas tank. So I'm thinking he wrapped one item, put it in the gas tank, got some gas on his hands, went to rip out another patch to wrap the next item. That, I mean, it's a stretch. I, well, I guess that makes sense for the patch being ripped out. Yeah, I don't. I think it's a little still hard to believe the whole sequence of events here, but nonetheless, yeah. something tips him off to look in the gas tank. <laughs> right. This scene, we take a breather from it right after he flips open the gas tank, and I gave away what, what's in it. <laughs> we'll go on. Back in the intact Quonset hut, Faraday is listening to the radio, and it says the plane's ETA is now two minutes. And that is really the only information you get <laughs> in this scene. And then he walks right outside, and right away the radio says the ETA is one minute. I'm not mm -hmm. sure why they even bothered showing him in the hut <laughs> hearing the two-minute update. Mm -hmm. uh, well, anyway, uh, they're down to a minute now before the planes arrive. And back in the garage, Jones is now reaching into the gas tank, and he pulls out a pistol wrapped in this fabric, uh, presumably a water and gas-proof fabric. And we get a brief shot of the jets approaching closer. And then in the gas tank, he finds... A working tracker. It's tuned to the correct frequency. So he starts following the beeps. He turns the tracker on, follows the beeps. They lead it up, up the steps and out of the garage. And as he's walking up the steps, an arm swings out from behind the wall on the upper floor. And Jones gets Gordon Freeman. <laughs> it's a standard issue red crowbar. And it whacks him on the noggin. He falls to the bottom of the stairs. He's knocked out good and proper. And it turns out what I was really hoping was not <laughs> going to turn out, but I guess it had to be this way. It's Baslov. Mm -hmm. Good old Ernest Borgnine. Well, you know, it's going to be the nice guy, not the jerk. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Yeah, I guess, I guess looking back on it, he was just a little too friendly to be believable. <laughs> You know, Jones had offered earlier the argument that he'd been totally trustworthy since they got him out of the Berlin Wall, but that was only seven years ago, and for a sleeper agent, seven years is not a long time to wait to be called to action. So, uh, yeah, well, you're going to have that, I guess. So outside, Faraday and a group of men are standing around watching the jet planes approach. They zoom overhead very loudly, and then they uh, start circling back. And then the radio says that slower planes are coming. Faraday says that'll be the paratroopers. And I presume that's what the fighter jets are for, is to be escort for the slower planes, because uh, mm -hmm. so they, can, they can't land the fighters here, or, you know, unless they just plan to shoot some missiles at something. I don't know. Mm -hmm. What else they'd be doing? But anyway, the slower planes are coming, and they're going to be dropping paratroopers. So that'll add some spice to the place. Then uh, in the garage, the Snowcat garage, Anders comes in, and he uh, has a rifle on Vaslov. But Vaslov has a pistol on Anders. Uh, Vaslov turned fast enough when Anders made a noise that they got into a little stalemate situation. But Anders is the one who puts his gun down, and I'm not sure why he does that, because his gun is actually more powerful than Vaslov's, and each <laughs> of them has the other dead to rights. He doesn't look scared, or, you know, not any more scared than a professional would be in that position. Mm -hmm. 
So it's not clear why Anders puts his gun down, but he does. Maybe it's reflexively trying to obey the orders that he had to cooperate with this guy. I, I don't know. Anders looks down at the bottom of the steps, sees Jones unconscious. He says, and I was just beginning to think it was him. <laughs> and Vaslov says, he always thought it was you. Yeah. And Vaslov, throughout the scene, he's uh, it, it's a very entertaining performance because he's uh, he's he's kind of in high spirits, and even though he's just outright fessing up to being the evil commie jerk, uh, <laughs> he still he still does it with kind of a smile, you know, kind of in a charming, comradely way. It's it's an interesting dynamic there, I guess you'd say. So Vasilev tells Anders to pick up the crowbar and kill him, which means attempt to kill him and die mm-hmm. in the process. Anders realizes what Vasilev's idea here is that Anders tries to kill him, leaves physical evidence that he attacked him. Vasilev shoots Anders. And then when other people come and find them, it looks like Vasilev is the innocent party. Right, right. And, uh, you know, he says, you're not going to use me as an excuse. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. But Vaslov has an interesting counter-argument. <laughs> he says, They say a bull in the ring dies a much better death than a steer in a slaughterhouse. A bull has a chance. Do you want to be killed for a bull, Captain, or a steer? If you strike very quickly, you might even take me by surprise. Anders realizes that Vaslov's argument has some logic to it. I mean, this is the best chance he's going to have. Crowbar's better than nothing at all. (laughs) And it turns out he actually does very well. He ends up getting the upper hand. Uh, in fact, and it looks like Vaslov's in trouble until something goes wrong. Jones wakes up. He's groggy, but he's starting to wake up. And when he sees the conflict between Anders and Vaslov, he shoots Anders. He shoots him several times. Yeah, he's assuming he was the spy after all because he didn't overhear all of this. Right. So now... Jones is still recovering, Anders is dead, and Vaslov hears people coming, so he stows his pistol in his coat. It's Faraday who arrives. He arrives with a few others. Yeah, and and Vaslov is really good here. He looks all scared, like he doesn't quite understand what happened and everything. Like, if you came across (laughs) this, he's he's acting perfectly, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Vaslav says, as he was inspecting Jones lying unconscious at the bottom of the stairs, Anders attacked him with a crowbar, which, of course, is exactly what he, (laughs) Vaslav, had done to Jones. Vaslav, right next to Jones, there's a pile of old snowshoes and various bric-a-brac. And in the snow, in that pile, Vaslav hears the tracker beeping and... With Faraday around, all he can do is just point it out. Hey, I mean, it's clear that he wants to kind of grab it and hide it, but it's making noise and everyone's hearing the noise. Right. And so he, he can't get away with it, you know? Yeah. But Vaslov may be somewhat pleased when Faraday tells him to go <laughs> find the capsule with the tracker. So Vaslov departs. 
everybody but Faraday goes with him. Faraday alone, he notices that the gas tank lid is open on the snowcat. He reaches in, and he finds a third wrapped device. This one has an antenna like the tracker did, but this one has a label in Cyrillic, in, in Russian. So he takes it, and, uh, and maybe later on he'll figure out a use for it. Mm -hmm. Back outside the capsule, Vaslav has made it to the capsule. It's frozen in ice, not very deep in the ice. He just brushes the snow off, and you can see it right through the ice. It's really only about 30 yards away from the garage building, and there's a red light on it, which means it's a booby trap. So Faraday sends his hundred men back to the sub, the ones that he called out of the sub, and he radios the submarine that if anything explodes, the submarine is to leave without waiting for anything. Just mm -hmm. get out as soon as possible. Uh, Faraday sends a couple men to bring blowtorches, and they start melting through the ice. Then a light snow begins to fall, the snow of paratroopers. <laughs> Russian paratroopers, commies, Soviets. They come down to the ground. They've got some neat little, uh, they've got white parachutes for the men, and they've got red parachutes for the uh, supply packages that also drop, and they collect those up as they approach. And I don't know if that's accurate, but it kind of makes sense to me, right? Because I think the red would let them find the supply caches very it quickly. Would, it would stand out against the ice, yeah. So as they're approaching, Faraday tells his men to go ahead and just get the device out of the ice. You know, he's, he's wondering whether or not it's safe to do so, but since nobody knows, he says, yeah, just get it. An older man appears. Uh, he's one of the Soviets. He comes forward out of the mass of paratroopers that have strategically stationed themselves behind a big jutting blocks of ice. This older man, he's graying, but he's still very capable looking and a little severe looking. I'm guessing maybe in his 50s. He introduces himself as Colonel Ostrovsky. He explains that he's here to retrieve a capsule from a satellite. He gives some more recap. It's uh, you know, for the benefit of the folks who just came in time <laughs> to see the last 10 minutes of the movie. Mm -hmm. After the basic explanation, he says, We only wish to obtain that which belongs to us under international law. Therefore, sir, I know you and your men will withdraw and permit us to take possession of what is rightfully ours. Faraday says, we will do so directly, sir, but first, under an international law, we will remove the film which was taken from the United States, which was in a camera <laughs> belonging to the United Kingdom of Great Britain. Well, Ostrovsky points out that the device is booby-trapped, which our guys had already figured out, but uh, <laughs> it's still true. Faraday asks Vaslov if he can get it open. And Vaslav is kind of hidden behind an ice outcropping, so it's not immediately evident to Ostrovsky everything that he's doing. He asks Vaslav if he can open it, and he says yeah, he's been briefed on it, he can try. Ostrovsky shows off a gadget that he brought along. It's a remote detonator, and he's turned the safety off. He just needs a little pressure from his thumb to blow up the capsule. Mm -hmm. Now, Faraday could, he says, uh, could try to take the capsule aboard his sub, but he asks the question, does your sub have enough hull to withstand 
the explosion. <laughs> Faraday tells his unarmed men to withdraw. He says the rest of the men, the armed ones, are not going to withdraw. This represents a classic Cold War thing, right? Where if somebody does the wrong thing for one second, it could trigger even World War Three. And I was thinking of a true story. Mm-hmm. A Russian who was one of the people, you know, down in a bunker who could set off the missiles for World War Three, mm-hmm. And radar showed that apparently the United States was attacking. And this one guy decided, you know what? It doesn't make sense. I don't think yeah. they're attacking. And he did not set off the missiles. And he may have saved the world. You know? Yeah. So yeah. The, what the movie is presenting here is a very realistic, like, anybody could make a mistake, and that mistake could be really, really big. <laughs> oh, yeah. 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 <laughs> Nostrovsky points out he has more men with better positions. And he also says... I must also tell you, sir, <laughs> although I'm under strict orders to avoid violence if possible, my personal nature is a violent one. <laughs> and it's, uh, it's believable. He looks like a pretty serious guy. Mm-hmm. He gives Faraday two minutes to stand clear of the capsule. Hidden behind the ice outcropping, Vaslov gets the film out closes up the capsule and rearms it so the red light is on again. It looks normal from the outside. Faraday points out that Jones and Vaslov are civilians and asks if they may leave the field. Ostrovsky says it's all right if they leave the field, but they can't go to the submarine. They'd have to just stand off to the side and look pretty. So then Ostrovsky says, time's up. The two minutes are up. Give over the capsule. There is men will advance and take it. So Faraday... Says, all right, we'll give it to you. He says, the responsibility for what will happen now is yours and yours alone. Take the capsule. He goes up till he's just a couple feet away from Ostrovsky, and he tosses the capsule towards his chest rather abruptly. It's kind of a surprise move. Ostrovsky catches it, but it could have caught him by surprise if he mm-hmm. didn't have better reflexes. Ostrovsky opens the capsule and sees that it's empty. He orders his men to start shooting. The first move is to fire off some mortars that are going to drop yellow smoke grenades and create complete confusion and chaos. They're shooting. Well, I will say chaos. it's rather obvious that all of the yellow smoke going around is like an optical effect <laughs> to kind of obscure things. <laughs> it wasn't actually there. <laughs> oh, yeah. See, I didn't notice that it was an effect. At any rate, it does seem to obscure things, effect or not. Jones and Vaslov fight, and Vaslov ends up being wounded. It wasn't clear to me in the fight exactly how the wounding happened, but he's... Yeah, and I'm going to say this is a little disappointing because this is, if anything, one of the total key points of the movie, right? These were two friends for years who had supported each other and they're now standing off and it just kind of happens and you don't totally know what happened. Yeah. It's yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a little, little anticlimactic, I guess. Yeah. But as the smoke is clearing, Jones reaches into Vaslev's coat and he takes the film canister out and Faraday orders Jones to give the film to Ostrovsky. And here is where I was thinking, I wonder if Jones 
has a fake film mm -hmm. canister and he's going to do the old switcheroo. And it turns out, it turns out that's not what happens. The only canister we see is, is the real one. And looking back, it's probably unlikely that he could have had a fake film canister gotten to him on short notice, yeah. you know, considering the times involved. But still, it, it popped into my head at the time as a possibility. Faraday told Jones to give the film to Ostrovsky, and Jones is going to, but then Walker. Now, you may remember Walker was the original head of the Marines before Anders. Oh, you know, I did not over. even pick up that that's who was doing this. Okay, <laughs> good catch. Oh, okay. I'm not quite sure why he did what he did here, so you should see. You can see if you can explain it to me. <laughs> okay, well, um, he, he aims his rifle at Ostrovsky and tells him to stand back. And Faraday yells at Walker, and that shuts him up. I think Walker gets an understanding that this film canister is something that's vital, and... He probably just doesn't want it to get into the Russians' hands. You know, if that means shooting up some Russians or getting shot himself, then but he does so he does it. this on his own initiative. There's no orders or anything for him to do this. Yeah. And he doesn't really know what he's doing, so he's taking a chance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He is he is uh, disobeying the captain's orders at that point. Although once the captain yells at him, he does shut up at least momentarily. But that'll we'll get back to that. So yeah, it's. It might just be sheer inexperience. It seems as, which would also completely justify Anders's initial reaction to him, incidentally. <laughs> but Anders is dead, so he can't take any satisfaction in that. <laughs> anyway, Ostrovsky gets the film from Jones, and his men send it up in a weather balloon. Fulton, presumably, or the uh, Fultonsky, whatever the Russians call it. <laughs> Faraday pulls out the device that he found in the Snowcats gas tank, the one with the Russian label on it, that looks a whole lot like the very device that Ostrovsky was just brandishing a few mm -hmm. moments ago. Jones notices him pull this out, but he doesn't say anything. He just stands there watching. The jet is approaching. It is a jet, so maybe maybe that's what those that initial vanguard of jets was for, just to do the Balloon retrieval. Mm. Well, that and escort the paratroop. Anyway, while the jet's approaching, Walker suddenly gets the bright idea to rush one of the paratroopers. And as moves go, this is more inexplicable than the earlier one that he made. Right. Because it's utterly a hopeless effort. He's in, And it's just, yeah, he just basically tries to tackle the guy. And there's... And this is my earlier point. Like, I don't understand what he was doing here. Yeah. It, and then he gets it, shot, and there was no chance he wasn't going to get shot. There was no chance he was going to have any impact. Yeah, yeah. It's it's just maybe just sheer stress just deranged him. I, I can't say. But, yeah, as you noted, he gets a bullet for his trouble. Mm -hmm. And just as all this is happening, the weather balloon blows up. I think the directing is bad here, and I'm not, I think, the only person who's noticed this. It's not clear why it blew up. They have a shot mm. of the device in Faraday's hand, but you don't actually see him press it in a way that makes it clear that he blew up the balloon. I had to go nah. and look this up and find, yes, he was the one who blew up the balloon. But I, I think they 
it just kind of looks like the balloon just blew up and, and you don't necessarily know why. And, and mm. I, I feel like they kind of messed it up at this point. Yeah, that's, that, that's fair. Now for me, I, I, I didn't have any ambiguity with it because it was recent enough that you'd seen the detonator in his hand that I was able to make the connection. But yeah, if they, if they had dragged it out longer, I probably would have forgotten all about the detonator. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a fair point. So now the film is destroyed. Neither side is getting hold of it. And Ostrovsky, to his credit, he stays very cool. He has a little bit of dialogue, but in effect, he's just saying, I guess we're done here. <laughs> and to tie up loose ends, he says, it is unfortunate that the officer was shot, apparently by accident. <laughs> Faraday says, yes. And Ostrovsky says, further conflict between us would be pointless. Yeah. They both agree that it's time to go. Ostrovsky says, Dosvidanya. And Jones translates for Faraday, until you meet again. Faraday says, yes, until we meet again. The last spoken line of the movie is Jones saying to Ostrovsky, Dosvidanya. At which point, Ostrovsky gives him a funny, appraising kind of look. Yeah, and I didn't know what this meant. I mean, it, it seemed to imply there was something going on with Jones that we don't know about or, or whatever. I didn't understand it, but it did seem to imply that there's other things going on. Yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't know what, what the subtext is supposed to be, although uh, maybe, maybe it just means Jones is going to come for him when he isn't expecting <laughs> it. <laughs> Could be the sequel. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And then, uh, as Ostrovsky walks off, he leaves Vaslov's corpse just lying there in the snow. He's not useful anymore, so I guess, uh, <laughs> so long, Vaslov. Yeah. You, you died for the motherland. Good for you. <laughs> the movie isn't quite over. Yeah, now we get to the depressing part. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We see a view of a typewriter writing out a press release, a BS press release. <laughs> and what it says is, it has three lines. Word received, Ice Station Zebra survivors rescued. Russian paratroopers aid American nuclear submarine and heroic mission. <laughs> Government spokesmen for the two great nuclear powers cite this as a further example of international cooperation. Yeah, <laughs> I guess it's all true. What can you argue against? <laughs> Well, it's uh, it's cute. It kind of reminds me of the uh, the warehouse at the end of Raiders of the Lost yep. Ark. You know that that mood to it. We get a brief shot of the submarine. It's surfaced and it's sailing on open waters, and the end shows up on the screen. <laughs> yeah. So let's talk about this. First of all, general reception. I mean, some people liked it, but it really had a mixed reception. Roger Ebert. Really didn't like it. He described it as so flat and conventional that it's three moments of interest or an embarrassment. Mm. He called it a dull, stupid movie. He expressed a disappointment that the special effects did not live up to advanced claims, comparing them unfavorably to the effects in 2001, which, as we said, released at the same time. So that really mm -hmm. wasn't a good thing from the same company, actually. Huh. Regardless of what the critics thought, it lost a lot of money. People mm. did not go to see it. 
one of the things that hurt MGM, which was the production company for both this and 2001, is that, you know, this was in Cinerama and they had special Cinerama theaters, only so many of them that had the special screen. They pulled 2001, which was making lots of money, and they put this in its place, <sighs> which turned out to be not a good business idea. <laughs> oh, boy. That aside, there are a lot of people over time who've liked it, and not a big surprise for us, a guilty pleasure of this was for John Carpenter. So uh -huh. he doesn't defend it, but he really liked this movie, and as we've seen, he clearly took a lot from it for the thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, uh, you know, I, I didn't mention, but that one, the Snowcat Garage building, mm -hmm. those stairs going down to the garage level, there's a very similar set of stairs in the thing, which goes down <laughs> to where the, the block of ice is that the thing mm -hmm. was uh, frozen in. So it's, yeah, but, but just all over the movie, there's all kinds of things that are evocative of one, yeah. of one movie. Of I the mean, other. it's really basically the same story is the thing just a different plot point you know yeah there yeah. is even there is the same paranoia about wondering yeah. who the bad guy is although they don't do as much with that as they could i think yeah. you know yeah. you get a that shot of anders looking creepy at one point but uh you know they they really uh they could have played that up more i think but, yeah an argument i would make there is they should have given anders more character i mean they gave him about mm -hmm. 30 seconds where he said oh i'm a hard ass and that was about it. And, and yeah. again, so let's talk about the structure. Basically, we have two movies or two acts in this, right? We travel to the destination, and then we unravel the Arctic mystery at the destination. Mm -hmm. And it could have all just been done in the last half, the way the thing is, right? I mean, you're in the Arctic, and the mystery starts. That's what the thing is. Yeah. But it's okay. It's fine, because they're... You know, when I first viewed this, I did feel like the first 90 minutes of the two and a half hours was not necessary. But on mm -hmm. the second viewing, I realized, yeah, they are setting up a lot of stuff there. They are setting up that there's a mole who tried to sink the sub, you know, and that's important. And who might it be and all these. So, so there's some useful stuff there. But again, if they hadn't spent so much time on the procedurals of running a sub, they could have put in more character. They could have given Anders more of a character that would have made it more interesting how that went. You want, so here's my ideal. I'm going to rewrite the movie for them, right? And I think this would have been, with almost the same movie, a much more successful movie. Mm -hmm. When you start out, right now, all we see is that some capsule drops onto the ice and somebody picks it up. And then we go through all of this to get to Ice Station Zebra, and, and it's supposed to be a big deal. Imagine if they had spent just another 30 seconds or a minute and they had shown at Ice Station Zebra gunshots and an explosion and people on mm -hmm. fire running around. And then they went to all the rest of this. All you would have needed was 30 seconds. And it would have been so much more intriguing to say, wow, I really want to know what's going on right. at Ice Station yeah. Zebra. And then that would have compelled all this. And then you cut down all the sub procedural stuff. You add in more characterization for Anders and for the Lieutenant who's in charge of the Marines. And I think you just end up with a much more compelling movie with almost the exact same content. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I do think, I mean, personally, I enjoyed that whole 90 minute introduction, <laughs> but I, 
I enjoyed yeah, the But you little... are a procedural guy, let's face it. <laughs> to, yeah, yeah, to some extent. I mean, you know, it, it, it depends on the subject and various things, but if it's something that I find interesting, uh, and I found the submarine really interesting, then yeah, I can I can sit through a lot of stuff, just like, you know, in the Star Wars prequels, I enjoyed all the talk about the government, <laughs> you know, because <laughs> it just amused me, entertained me, whatever. But I know that is not, I don't speak for the general movie viewing public uh, on that score. So I, yeah, I you think, and George Lucas, you're the two people who enjoyed that part. <laughs> yeah. So I, I think you're right. I think it would have been a more successful movie overall if they did cut out a half hour of that beginning and insert a brief action sequence of just, uh, you know, maybe N nothing too clear and and understandable, but just the general chaos that went on when the when the, the one scientist was shooting the others and the other one was setting the place on fire and so forth. Just give a little taste of that chaos. Maybe even interleave that in that first hour, you know, or hey. formerly ninety minutes that we've cut <laughs> down to an hour. Well, now. and they tried to do it through dialogue, right? Mm -hmm. It's just they didn't show it. Yeah. And it just doesn't work when you're just talking about it. It's yeah, and if, if they had cut to that, even like you said, for thirty seconds, that would have uh that would have got people going, Oh, I wonder what that's all about. Yep. So, yep. Yeah, I think I think you're right on the money with that. Uh it would have would have been a better movie for broader appeal to do that, I think. One way I'm a hypocrite is that two thousand and one, that as we've said repeatedly, was released at the same time does many of the things I'm talking about. It spends huge amounts of time on procedural space stuff with spacecraft just rotating and connecting mm -hmm. with other spacecraft, and I love it. But <laughs> what they were doing was so compelling versus this, where literally, remember we talked about, you know, when they're sinking, and the only way to get out of sinking is that they have their rotors going backwards, and we just keep seeing shots of the rotors. It's not compelling. It's not interesting the way the stuff in 2001 was right yeah um, and yeah. they do they do try to ramp up the tension by saying the you know the reactor is getting hotter and so yeah. forth but yeah but you know that if they get crushed by the water pressure that's the end of the movie so uh, <laughs> yeah uh, it kind of it's a foregone conclusion at that point in the movie right uh well let's talk about the actors so I'll start out what I consider the low point. I mean, again, Rock Hudson, huge star. In fact, the deal was, I guess, he had been in a bunch of romantic comedies and stuff, and he wanted to break out of that, so he wanted to mm -hmm. do, you know, more action movie. But, I mean, he's solid, he's fine. But one of the things I think is a problem is, I think you could say absolutely nothing in this movie would change if his character wasn't there. Yeah, or or if he, yeah, or if, I mean, you'd still need a captain on the sub, but yeah. he wouldn't really have to do much aside from here's your room. Yeah, yeah I mean, nothing <laughs> happens because he's there. He has a couple good lines. You know, he tells them to keep the rotors going when they need to go in reverse, and that's it, you know. Mm -hmm. Borg Knight is a lot of fun and obviously oh, yeah. great for making you feel like this is a great guy so he couldn't possibly be the mole <laughs> oh yeah yeah you really you really want him to turn out to be the good guy or at least yeah. i did he, he, <laughs> he was just he was just this big lovable teddy bear kind of guy you know and uh and he turns out to be a lousy stinking commie <laughs> <laughs> 
And McGowan was great. I mean, he's really the star, right? He's like listed fourth on the list, but he's really driving mm-hmm. the whole movie. And I, I didn't see anything about this, but I have to wonder if they let him touch up his lines because his lines are so appropriate to him that I can't imagine that they just wrote them without really knowing who he was, right? I mean, mm-hmm. these are McGowan lines. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And and he does have that uh, that charm that, uh, you know, I, I'm not super acquainted with his career. I've seen that one episode of Danger Man and one episode of The Prisoner so far. Well, you, but Technically, but you've seen many episodes, but we won't uh, <laughs> open the <laughs> curtain that far. <laughs> the point I was getting at is that he has... He has this charm that comes across, and you mentioned, and I think it was in the Danger Man podcast, it's evident that he is a smart guy, you know. Mm-hmm. He's, he's got some actual intellect, and, and that, that seems to be pretty consistent in coming through. It comes through in this show as much as the others. Right. And to explain my earlier comment to our more loyal listeners— you know, it's always possible we have to record these out of order. It might even be possible <laughs> we record them months and months out of order. So <laughs> I'll let you speculate as to what that might mean. <laughs> yeah. But that would that would create the risk that there was no way to put all the episodes of this season in a logical exactly. order. Be, which our would own be fans are, that's great. Our own fans will need to reorder our podcast episodes. <laughs> <laughs> now Jim Brown, I didn't know him. I'm not familiar with his other work. He was fine, didn't do a lot for me, but it seemed like you had a better impression, but also maybe that you were more familiar with him. Yeah, I'm, I'm not terribly familiar with his career. Um, I only knew the stuff about his background because I, I went and I looked it up. And then he didn't Wait, get Even though whole... he's from your state? Is that, <laughs> or at least yeah, as a player? Yeah, well, he, he played for the Browns, but I... Uh, I have to admit, I'm not a huge sports follower, so there's a lot I don't know. When I said that I enjoyed him in this, it was based on the very few lines that he actually ended up getting. I I liked what he was able to do, and mm-hmm. uh, if he'd been given more lines, I think he would have done well with them. I agree with that. There, I had no problem with his acting. He just didn't get that many lines. And like you said, and as we said earlier, I think the story would have been better if he had had a more well-defined character. Mm-hmm. And that would have been an opportunity to build up the paranoia some more, too. Yeah. So, in my conclusion is, there's a really good movie in here, but I think that they just padded it too much, and they missed the mark, and it didn't quite hit audiences. And as we've talked about, a few changes, and I think it might have been a much more successful movie without really having to change that much about it. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the things that didn't strike me until watching it my second time for our podcast is this movie totally fits in the prisoner universe. Mm-hmm. McGowan yeah. is a spy. We never learn his real name. He admits that Jones is not his actual name. Yeah. And this could absolutely be a mission that he had before he ended up on the island as number six. The only real character differences is that he is more bloodthirsty than number six. It's clear he's happy to shoot people if he needs to. And number six doesn't use guns and tries to avoid killing people. But then I realized, you know, this story could be character development, right? Like, because Mm -hmm. he killed the wrong guy. 
he killed right. Anders, who was innocent. Yeah. And that could have led him to not wanting to shoot people. Yeah. Maybe even, maybe his resignation. But I mean, yeah. So I'm going to argue this, uh, <laughs> this movie is the prequel to the prisoner. <laughs> We've de <laughs> declared <laughs> it. <laughs> yeah, it could be. It's a, it's an interesting little bit of a, I think it's called head cannon when, mm -hmm. uh, when you, uh, put something in the, in the series canon that, uh, maybe other people wouldn't necessarily go along with, but, uh, makes sense to me. <laughs> yeah. So with that, you know, you got to make the call at this point. Is this movie worth watching for a modern audience? Hmm. Uh, I'd say for a specialized subset of the modern audience <laughs> that is a large attention span. Uh, I mean, it is a fun or movie. Or watches it at two times speed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that'd work too. Sure. <laughs> I'd give it a worth watching. If you like submarines. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. Especially historically given all the firsts in this. So, so, you know, we're, we're going to say for the, for the average person, probably not worth watching, but if there's something in all the stuff we've said that intrigues you, or if you're an autistic person who loves submarines, <laughs> you should watch it. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, next up, having theoretically completed this epic journey through the prisoner, not that we're recording <laughs> this months ahead of time before we've actually gone through that journey <laughs> and I station zebra. It's time to get back to our roots. Next week, we start in on the second season of Doctor Who with William Hartnell in the story Planet of Giants. We'll see you then. I, I did want to ask if you know, because I, I think you haven't got to it. I used the rest of the story at the end of the Aztec one, I think, and I've used it here. Do you know what that comes from? Uh, what what comes from? The rest of the story. Oh, Paul Harvey. Yep, yep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I can't even oh. say how many of those I heard, uh, you know, back when I used to listen to radio oh, when he was yeah. around, yeah. The, the Simpsons had a joke about that. <laughs> uh, you hear Paul, Paul Harvey's voice on the radio, and it was a, and that little boy who nobody liked grew up to be Roy Cohn. And now you know the rest of the story. Speaking of which, uh, I didn't get a chance or I forgot, but later on you had the uh, semen joke. And oh. it, remind, it reminded me of a Simpsons quote I'll put in if I can find it, where um, Smithers is... Uh, they're doing some submarine thing. Maybe they're even doing a takeoff of this. I don't remember. And Smithers is a is an officer on the submarine. <laughs> he says, "Semen and women don't mix." <laughs> I think I remember seeing that. Yeah, I was actually I was I was just now in my mind debating whether or not I should just glide over that. But uh, but if you don't think it'll be too. Yeah, uh, you know, off color. The, the only reason I stay away from swear words, not you know, both, you know, I mean, I, if kids want to listen to a show about 50 year old things, that's great. I'm not sure too many will, <laughs> but it's just that if you use swear words, then you have to flag the episode as adult and then mm. it's going to show up in less search results, right? So it just oh, sure, pulls you down a little bit. And oh, yeah, there are 
many podcasts I listen to where it's totally appropriate and that's what they do. It's just, I figure why, why cut down our chances of somebody finding us, right? So, oh, sure. Well, I guess um, technically this is, doesn't include any swear words, so maybe we're all right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, and I can't resist doing the, the Simpsons quote if I can find it, so that's good. <laughs> all right. We have an escort, Mr. Jones. Russian troller. The innocent and the inevitable Russian troller. 